Well, how are we? Good, good. Glad you're good. Looking good. Doing good. Um, you have to forgive me. Uh, I'm battling something, not feeling too good. Uh, but if you want it, we can hug after service is over and uh, be glad to impart a gift to you. Jasper, this is what great about you. Uh, you don't get any of the sickness. You just get all the teaching. And um, anyway, thank you for being here today. We're starting a new message series today on the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Romans. Uh, it comes right after the Gospels and Acts and then the letter to the Romans. And, and really, realistically, the reason why Romans is where it's at in all of Paul's letters is the, the New Testament is just simply arranged from Paul's longest letters to his shortest ones. And so Romans is first because it's the longest one, but the letter to the Romans is also his greatest one. And in fact, I would argue and most scholars argue that the letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever written in human history. The greatest letter because it tells us the most about who Jesus is. It tells us about the gospel. In fact, the word gospel is one of Paul's favorite words of its 70 something uses in the New Testament. Paul uses it 60 times. And so it is a word that Paul loves to describe all the activity of God. And so coming out of our last series that we just finished up, if you were here last week called Burning the Ships, and we said, we wanna abide in Jesus. We're going to abide in his word and obey him. And so this is a great time for us just to do that, just to hang out in his word. And that's what we're gonna do. And, and really the reason being this, just kind of taking this book for the next however months, 10 months, 10 years, however long it takes us, uh, that was kind of a joke. But the point is we're just gonna teach through this because it's just another way of teaching. And, and, and when it comes to preaching, obviously there are multiple ways to do it. And I'm not talking about, you know, using stories and being funny and that kind of stuff, but really kind of the two primary ways to teach is one more of a biblical theology and then one more what's called a systematic theology. And biblical theology is simply just kind of walking through a book and, and just kind of walking through the storyline of the Bible, kind of historically, chronologically, see what's happening in that letter at that time. And then systematic theology is the opposite to where it looks at a subject matter like sin or God or marriage. And it says, okay, here's where it is all in all parts of the Bible. And so we teach both of those ways here to where we might take a subject matter and look at it in the Bible and also look at just kind of biblical theology. Okay, what is this letter about and what is the point of it? And so I've been convicted really over the last several months now of, of God saying, uh, I feel like God leading us as a church to spend more time just preaching through books of the Bible. Not that we don't do that. Last year we taught through first, second, and third John, and not that we won't ever talk systematically about a subject anymore, but just kind of having more of a healthy diet of walking through letters, walking through books of the Bible to help us better understand why it was put together that way and what the point of it is. And I, and I believe one of those reasons that God wants us to do that is because just in today's world, even though we have more information than ever before, we've really become more dumb, is because we just ask Google, hey, Google, what does this mean? And we don't study it for ourselves. And so when it comes to the Bible, we're just really a lot of times biblically illiterate. And so I just want, again, feeling impressed by the Holy Spirit and, and a conviction on my life of saying, I want to help you better understand your Bible. And so just kind of teaching through it biblically so that you understand better about what the Bible says. And, and so I want you to understand, we're just going to teach through this letter, 16 chapters, just take it verse by verse. And again, uh, we've got it laid out now, at least pretty much through the end of the year. And we'll take a break in the, in the month of August and, and, and 
do a more kind of a systematic teaching and then get right back into the book of Romans. But as we do that, I want you to understand something. We're going to encounter truths in this letter that you may not necessarily agree with. There's gonna be some subjects that we talk about in this letter that force us to talk about them because they're in this letter that you may think, man, I don't, I don't know if that's right. I don't know if I believe that. And, and there are definitely some subjects that we're gonna talk about. They're gonna fly in the face of current cultural understandings right now and how people think in our culture right now. And so for us to be faithful believers, we have to have a biblical theology, not just a cultural theology. And so the letter to the Romans is gonna help us do that. But I just wanna let you know on the front end, we're gonna tackle some stuff that, that you're like, I just don't know if I believe it. But here's what I want you to hear me say. It doesn't make it any less true. One of my favorite Bible teachers who has now gone to be with Jesus, R.C. Sproul, always lamented this one Christian bumper sticker that he hated. And it said this, it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever seen that? If it's on your car, uh, I'm not calling you out, but you may wanna rip it off later. Um, but no, this is R.C. Sproul. This is what he said, this is why he didn't like the sticker. So let me explain it first. Why he didn't like the sticker is he said, it should say, God said it, that settles it. Doesn't matter if you believe it. Right, God said it, that settles it. And so his whole point was, I hope you believe it, but that settles it is not determined by whether or not you believe it, it's determined by whether or not God said it. And so as we preach through this letter to the Romans, I want you to understand, he's gonna say some stuff and you're gonna have an opportunity to believe it, but you may not currently believe it, but I want you to understand it doesn't make it any less true. It's because this is what God said. And so to help you lastly, I wanna recommend two things to you. One, this is a book that I bought for all of our staff. In fact, there's two volumes of it uh, written by Tim Keller, who's another one of my favorite Bible teachers. Uh, he's still alive. He's amazing. Uh, pastored in New York City for decades. And so just has an unbelievable way of communicating God's truth really to skeptical people. And so this is called Romans 1 through 7 for you. And then he also wrote Romans 8 through 16 for you. And so two books, two volumes that kind of, and it's, and it's not really an in-depth commentary as more as it is just kind of walks you through overview section by section of the letter to the Romans. And so I'd highly recommend this to you. Although somebody at our last service said it already just sold out at Amazon, but there's other ways that you can get it, I'm sure. But we just bought 30 copies of each one of these and I gave them to our staff so they could follow along with us. The second resource I would recommend to you is, uh, especially if you're in a group, which we love groups. We sent out uh, in our sermon notes this week a resource called REAP, R-E-A-P, which is just simply an acronym to how to study the Bible. It's read, examine, apply, pray. We didn't come up with it, another church did, but it just fits uh, so great with our mission of growing people, you know, sowing and reaping. Uh, that's also on our Facebook page, just a very simple Bible study method that as we go through this letter to the Romans, you can apply. You can read it, you can examine it, you can apply it, and you can pray through it. And so I highly recommend both of those two resources to you, all right? Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together, then we'll jump into Romans. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life. And um, I pray now as we open up your word that you would create belief. Um, you would help us understand it and see it for what it's worth because it is your word. And if it is your word and you said it, then it does settle it. God, and so help us to believe it because it's your word and then let it have its intended effect in our life. And obviously, God, help me to communicate it rightly because I want to honor you by honoring your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter one is where we're gonna start in verse one and two. But before we start there, I just wanna kind of give you three words that kind of help us understand these first seven verses. 
And so these first seven verses are where we're gonna look today, verses one through seven, because it's one long run-on sentence. Now, I, I preach out of the ESV because it's one of the most accurate English translations that we have. Uh, and, and some of your translations that may not have it all as one sentence, but the ESV does. And so Paul likes to write long run-on sentences, which is why I do too, because I'm trying to be biblical, right? And so it's these seven verses. But here's kind of the category, or here's some words, headings to help you understand this. And this is just his greeting, all right? This is just his greeting. And so he writes it like this. He starts off with Paul saying who he is. Then he says, Jesus, so it goes Paul to Jesus, and then you. Paul, Jesus, you, all right? So that's kind of how he organizes these seven verses, and so we're just gonna kind of talk through it like that. Paul, Jesus, then you. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Look at verse one. It starts off, Paul. Paul, comma, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So let's stop and and, and chat here for a little bit. He starts off by saying, who wrote it? This is from Paul. Now, depending upon your Bible knowledge or your church involvement, you may already know who Paul is, but there may be some of you who don't know who Paul is. Paul used to be a guy named Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee. In fact, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what's very interesting, the word Pharisees is the exact same wording there where he says set apart. Here it's used as a verb, he's set apart for the gospel. But the word Pharisee means set apart. And so Paul was a Jewish guy who grew up, he's also a Roman citizen, and he can speak to the Greeks, which is why he just is one of the greatest, probably the greatest missionary who ever lived. However, when he, when he first was growing up, he grew up in the Jewish faith and he was a Pharisee. He was set apart, which means he got some of the best education and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so all the Old Testament, he would have known and memorized most of it. And so Paul was a very religious man. He was a very religious man. And what you need to understand about Paul is that he was so religious that when this dude named Jesus or Yeshua came along and claiming to be God in the flesh, it infuriated him. It infuriated him that this guy would demean the scriptures, would claim that he was there before Abraham. And so he would have cheered on Jesus dying. He would have cheered on, in fact, we know this from Acts chapter six and seven, when Stephen is stoned, Saul is there approving of his execution. And then Saul starts leading executions and persecution against Christians, people who called themselves followers of Jesus. And Saul was literally on a road to Damascus because he wanted to go out and persecute more people who were claiming that this Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. And it's on that road to Damascus that this Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up to Paul, blinds him, knocks him off of his horse, and then says, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul has an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus And then it blinds him. And then Ananias has to come and pray for him. Those scales fall off. And then Paul, he's changed from Saul to Paul, becomes the the most zealous follower of Jesus. And he starts showing up at people's Bible studies and they're like, hold up, what are you doing here? I mean, just imagine if a dude who was killing Christians showed up at your group. You're like, ah, ah, what are you... Well, what's your purpose? And Paul's like, no, no, for real. I met Jesus. 
I met Jesus and now I'm a servant. And that's exactly how he describes himself. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's interesting. The word there is servants, the Greek word doulos, and it can be translated servant, but it has a, it has a weightier meaning than what we normally think about the word servant. More realistically, it is used to talk about being a slave. Now, one of the reasons why the translators of the ESV didn't use the word slave is particularly here in 21st century America, when we think of the word slave, we only think of the transatlantic African slave trade. And sadly, a lot of people use the Bible to justify that, which was horribly wrong, horribly wrong, which thankfully those who led the effort to abolish slavery as we knew it in this country were Christians. And so when Paul's talking about here and he uses the word servant, you need to understand something. It's really a heavier word. And the point of all he's saying is, is he has a master and his master is Jesus. So what that means is this, Paul, now he says this later in Acts, he says this in other places where he says his life means nothing to him now. He is a slave to Jesus. Jesus is his master. Jesus is his king. Jesus is his Lord. And so if Paul had a social media account today, that would be his bio, right? Servant of Jesus Christ, slave to Jesus Christ. My life belongs to him now. And we, we do this on our bios. You may say Christ follower, husband, dad, bulldog fan, right? Whatever it is. But Paul doesn't get into any of that other stuff. He just says, listen, you need to understand about me. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ and I'm an apostle. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ and I'm an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That was all he was. And so Paul's life was summed up in those words. You wanna know who Paul is? That's who Paul is. He's a slave of Christ called to be an apostle, set apart. And again, that word set apart is the same idea of the word Pharisee. So here's what's amazing. He saw himself very religious on the front end and he was set apart as a Pharisee for the law. Now he's saying, because of Christ, I'm set apart for the gospel, for the good news. Now here's what's interesting. Verse two, he says, which the prophets prophesied before him was promised all the way through the Old Testament. So here's what you gotta understand about Paul. Paul believes who Jesus is, not just because he met him on a road to Damascus, but because when his eyes were open, when he met Jesus, then he understood this is the one that the entire Old Testament has been talking about. I can only imagine after Paul met Jesus, he went away for a couple years before he went to Jerusalem and really got commissioned by the official apostles of Jesus. I can only imagine during those several years, Paul's mind was just exploding with all the things that he knew. I mean, remember, he would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized, all 600 laws. He knew it all. And I can only imagine his mind was exploding with the concept of like, oh my gosh, these people that I was killing that were following this guy, he's the one that all those scriptures pointed to. So let me, let me help you understand something. You cannot accurately understand who Jesus is without your Old Testament. Now they would not have called it the Old Testament because they didn't have the new one yet. So Paul hadn't written the New Testament yet for us to have an old one. He just refers to them as the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. And so you can accurately read the Old Testament and come to a conclusion that there is a God and it's not me and the Savior's coming. 
So I want you to understand how people were saved in the Old Testament. People were not saved in the Old Testament through all the sacrificial worship, animal sacrifices. They were not saved that way. They were saved in faith, looking forward to what all those things pointed to, which was Jesus. How do I know this? And we'll get into this in the letter to the Romans. Paul brings up Abraham. Abraham was alive over 400 years before the Torah was ever written. And the Bible says this about Abraham. He believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. So Paul is pointing all the way back to Abraham that salvation comes through faith. It comes through believing God. So Old Testament believers were saved because they looked forward to the Messiah. New Testament believers are saved because we look back to the Messiah. Does that make sense? So the cross is still the defining event in human history. The Old Testament closes with the promise of the sun arising. In the book of Malachi, or Malachi, depending upon how you want to say it, all right, it's really Malachi, but it closes saying the sun will arise, and when he arises, he will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers. And then the gospels open in the book of Matthew, which is over a 400-year period, saying that is Jesus. So you cannot rightly understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. So please, do not disconnect the Old Testament from the New, because the New Testament writers didn't. And so Paul is arguing all the way through, it's been Jesus, it's been Jesus, it's been Jesus, it's been Jesus. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, he is the seed of the woman, which is where he goes next. Remember I said, Paul, Jesus, look at verse three. It says, concerning his son, concerning his son, capital S, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Two things there you need to understand about this Jesus. One, he was a descendant of David and he was declared to be the son of God. Two things about Jesus you have to understand. He is fully human. He's not 50% human and 50% God. He is 100% human and 100% God. He is God in the flesh, as John would say it. The writer of Hebrews says he put on flesh and dwelt among us, right? We have it, so he shared in it. So Jesus is 100% man. And he is also in his flesh, a descendant of David. Here's why that's so important. Because God promised to David he'd always have a son on the throne. Now, David and Israel understood that only on one level of a physical throne, of a kingdom here on this earth made up of the nation of Israel. But God meant it way bigger than that. He meant just not on the boundaries of this nation of Israel, but the entire world. So that's why Jesus is called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Oh, there are kings, there are lords. He's just above them all. And so he is the king descended from David. We know that which simply means his lineage can be traced back in the flesh according to that kingdom that God established with David, which goes all the way back through the entire Old Testament back to Abraham. It's important to understand that because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah 
would be a descendant of David. So you need to understand when, when Paul uses the term Jesus Christ, and it is a favorite term of his, it's used over 500 times in the New Testament and almost 400 times Paul exclusively uses it. But Christ is not his last name. It's his title. So Jesus Christ, if he was filling out a form, wouldn't put first name Jesus, last name Christ. In fact, Jesus wouldn't even describe himself like that. Jesus described himself more than any other thing. His most favorite thing to say was son of man. You wanna know why? Because Jesus didn't have to prove why he was living that he was the son of God. He was secure in the fact that he was the son of God. He didn't walk around like most of I would and straight up I would too with an S on my chest saying, you know who I am, sucker? I am the son of God. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he was humble. He was perfect. He was the son of man. And so he is a man, fully man of the flesh, according to the descendancy of David. And that is a fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. But there's another thing you need to understand about Jesus. Not only is he a descendant, he was declared. He was declared to be the son of God in power. How? By his resurrection. By his resurrection. See, there were plenty of other people in Old Testament times that claimed to be the Messiah. Plenty of other people. And Rome and different places and different uh, kingdoms would squash it very easily. There's some interbiblical times between when Malachi closes and Matthew opens, the Maccabean period, and different things where people would rise up claiming to be the Messiah. And they were flesh. The problem was they weren't God. So when Jesus comes and he says, I'm the son of man, according to the descendancy of David, but I'm also, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. He's the son of God. Well, how do we know he's the son of God? You wanna know how we know he's the son of God? Because he did what no other human being has ever done before him and no other human being will ever do after him. He came back from the dead, never to die again. Now, when I say no human after him will never do that, I don't mean that those that are in him won't also resurrect. Yes, we will. But what I'm saying is there is no other Messiah. There is no other God. You wanna know why? Because the founder of any other religion, their bones are still in the ground. You can go to Israel and visit the tomb, which I'll have the opportunity to do later this year, which is amazing, but his body's not there. You wanna know why his body's not there? Because he ain't there. But even in the place that we think that the tomb is, we almost make a shrine out of it because that's what people do. But Jesus so clearly told us, listen, that's not the temple, you're the temple. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not about these buildings. It's not about places and holy lands where we go visit. It's about God indwelling people and making them holy people. And how can he do that? Because Jesus Christ is also fully God. And how do we know he's fully God? Because by the spirit of power, I love this, the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, the son of God empower the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wants us to understand something. This Jesus is God. He is God, which is so important to understand when you get to verse five. Look at verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Through whom we have received grace. Why is it so important to understand who this Jesus is? Because it's through Jesus you get grace. Now, what is grace? 
Grace, very simply, is this. You get what you don't deserve. You get what you don't deserve. And we'll get into this in the rest of Romans chapter one. We'll talk about the wrath of God and nobody likes to talk about the wrath of God, which is the bad news. But here's the, here's the thing. You can't have good news without bad news. So the bad news is because of our sin, we deserve punishment. Because of who we are, because of what we've done, because of we disobey God, just like Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. And now none of us want God. None of us want to follow God. And so we deserve punishment. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus got what he didn't deserve, which was hell. He didn't deserve hell. He didn't deserve eternal punishment. But on the cross, that's what he received. He took our punishment. He took our sin. He took our shame. Now, here's where most people think, yeah, I know that. That's the gospel. But you need to understand something. That's not all the gospel. That's only half of it. Half of the gospel is, yes, he took what you do deserve, which is hell, which is punishment. He took your unrighteousness on himself. He lived a sinless, perfect life, but he died a sinner. But the second half of the gospel, this is why I say often, the good news is far gooder. I know that's bad English, man, but that is great theology. Come on, somebody. It's far gooder. It's not just that he got what you deserve, but you got what you don't deserve, which is heaven, which is God, which is righteousness. This is what's amazing in the power of the gospel. Not only did Jesus take your sin, but Jesus gave you his perfection. He gave you his righteousness. So now that when the father looks at you, all he sees is Christ's perfection. All he sees is Christ's righteousness. All he sees is Christ's holiness. All he sees is 33 years of Jesus getting it right. That's what he sees when he sees you if you're in Christ. This is why when we say, God, forgive us for our sins. If we are in Christ, God's like, what sins? What offense? It's as far as the east is from the west. Which you can't get any farther than that, right? Maybe north and south. I don't know. That's what God said. What is the point here? The point is that Paul wants those in Rome and those of us who are reading this to know we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's good news. It's good news. It's not good advice. And here's why. Good news, two parts to it. Again, it's Paul's favorite word. Uses it more than any other New Testament writer. Two parts to it. It's good and there's news. News is something happened. And what something that happened is what I just described. Christ took our place on the cross, took our sin, took our shame, and he transferred it to us. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. He took what we do deserve and gave us what we don't deserve, which is eternal joy and glory with his father. He took that and gave us what he has so that we could receive through faith that grace. And so when we talk about this, as far as the gospel, we need to understand something. We're talking about Paul here. And there may be some of you here today that you think you're too bad. You think you're too bad. Like there is no way God could save somebody like me. Let me ask you a question. Have you been killing some Christians lately? I, I hope that's a no, by the way. 
Were you a religious terrorist? Paul was, and it came to him. So you can't think that you're too bad, but you need to understand something. The gospel, the good news, the good part is also for religious people. Here's what you need to understand. We'll get into this later in the chapter one. Not also can you not be too bad, but you can't be good enough. See, there's some of you here that you haven't been saved, not because you think you're too bad, but because you think you're too good. You don't need the gospel. You believe that God helps those who help themselves. And so you start pulling it up and yeah, occasionally God will help you. You know, that phrase is not in the Bible anywhere. God doesn't help those who can help themselves. Why? Because no human can help themselves. God only helps those who know that they've got no shot at helping themselves. So the good news is simply this. He lived the life that you should have lived. But the problem is a lot of us is we don't think we're that bad. And so there's some religious people who need the gospel. And the devastating effect is you're not as good as Paul. You got the whole Old Testament memorized. You followed all the laws as good as Paul did. I guarantee you, you didn't. Jeb you bacon this morning? You out. Shrimp, right? What, you know what I'm saying? You, you got hair. Here's the good news. The good news is the gospel is received, not earned by grace. Getting what you don't deserve because Christ did get what you did deserve. Which is why he says in verse six, I love this. Remember Jesus or Paul, Jesus, you. Look at verse six, including you including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, peace to you. You are called to belong. You wanna know why God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin because he wanted you in his family. He wanted you as a son. He wanted you as a daughter. And in order to get you back into his family, his son had to trade places with you. So God did all that he did because he wanted you to belong to him. He wanted to love you. He wanted to love you. Please understand me. God didn't save you for you to love him. He saved you for him to love you. He called you to belong to a family. He called you to Jesus. He called you to love. And I love this one. He called you saints. Now, please understand something. I'm not trying to make fun of our Catholic brothers and sisters, but there's this idea in Catholicism that certain people that were good enough become saints. They're venerated as saints, and it always happens after they're dead. Because Catholics believe that you're not justified by faith alone, you're justified by works alone. That comes out of the book of James. We did a series on James a couple summers ago. I'd highly recommend you go uh, listen to that because that is not what James was talking about there. And so the idea is I have to work also, and if I work enough that after I die, I'll be a saint. And so there's few people that become saints and they become saints over different things and, we will, and people will pray to them. But here's what you need to understand. You don't become a saint after you do a lot of work. You become a saint after you belong to Jesus. 
So if you're in Christ, you're a saint. And we won't pray to you after you're dead. We'll pray to Jesus, which is why we also don't pray to Mary, because I think if you pray to Mary, Mary's going to be like, quit praying to me. I was just his earthly mother. I am not his heavenly father. Pray to him. It's all about him. And when you come to him, you're made whole. That word there, saint, means holy. You are made holy. You're made whole and righteous the moment you belong to Jesus. The moment you belong to Jesus, you are made whole and righteous and holy. Now, you don't feel that way, do you? Because you still sin. But that's the amazing part about grace. Is grace, there's an already part to it where God already sees you that way, but then by his grace, he's making you that way. But here's what, great, here's what walking with Jesus is, living out what you already are. Living out what you already are. God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. The problem is we go back and put our sin clothes like the, the prodigal son who went and you know, was hanging out with the pigs, which would have been horrible for a Jewish person. After he comes home, the father gives him his robe, clothes him. That's grace. How crazy would it be for that son to go back and put on his pig clothes? Putting on his pig clothes over that royal robe. That's all sin is. Sin is in our flesh, a failure to uh, uh, recognize what we already are. We're a son of God. We're a child of God. And then we go back and put on those clothes because they're comfortable to us. But you know how ridiculous that would be? Walking around with a royal robe covered up with clothes that smell like pigs. People that saw that be like, that dude is ridiculous. Well, Christians who go back into that way of life, it's just as ridiculous doesn't make you any less holy, but here's what I'm saying. When you became a believer, you were made holy. Now we are called to keep putting that on, putting that on, putting that on. And why is that so important? You want to know why that's so important? Because the gospel needs to come to you, which really what Paul is getting at here, and I rearrange the same words. This is the letter to the Romans. It's really Jesus to Paul to you. Jesus to Paul, to you. The good news came from Jesus to Paul and now through Paul to you. And so the question today, the first part of the question today is, has the gospel come to you? Has the gospel come to you? Has the good news come to you? Have you believed that just like Abraham, just like Paul and come to an understanding that you're saved by God's grace, not of your work so that nobody can boast, Paul said in Ephesians 2. But there's one last thing that I wanna point out and the rest of the letter of Romans will also affirm this. The chain is not end with you. It's, It's like this. It goes from Jesus to Paul to you, to them. From Jesus to Paul, from Paul to you, and then from you to them. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Paul says, including you, but also to all in Rome. Now, had all in Rome trusted Jesus yet? No. 
They hadn't. We know just from human history by the third century when Constantine became emperor, about 60% of Rome at that time was following Jesus, which was crazy because they were the world power and they tried to stamp it out by crucifying and killing Christians. But the more you tried to kill them, the more they kept multiplying like gremlins, which I hate that movie, but it's great theology, man. You put a little, little living water on that little sucker. You know, there's 15 of them. That's what should happen with Christians. But, but here's, hear me, and we'll get into this in the whole letter. In a few weeks, Paul's gonna talk about in Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save to the othermost, to the Jew first, the Gentile second. And here's what he's saying. Not only did God give Paul grace, but what else did he give Paul? He says, an apostleship. That word apostleship just means sent one. Paul called himself the apostle that was untimely born. He wasn't one of the 12, but Judas fell out, so Paul got in, right? But he wasn't just the apostle to the Jews like those 12 were, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, which means to everybody else who wasn't Jewish, including Romans, all those in Rome. And then he goes this, among all the nations. So what is Paul arguing for? The Paul... Paul's arguing for, listen, the gospel doesn't come to you. Listen to me. It doesn't just come to you. It comes through you. It comes through you to them. If the good news is that good, once you taste it, don't you want to share it? You want to share it. Let me say it to you in the negative. How arrogant do you and I have to be that after we get saved, we say, Jesus, you can come now. You can come now. Isn't that how we pray? Lord, come, come. I want you to come back. I need you to do away with all this sin, all this death, all this stuff. I am tired of all of this junk in my life. Would you just come? And I'm not saying that's a bad prayer in and of itself, but I'm saying it's an incomplete one. Why? Because aren't you glad he didn't come before you heard? Aren't you glad that he didn't answer the person's prayer in the last century that said, please come, Lord? Last week, if you were here, we burned some ships on this stage, which is our past. But let me say something to you. You got another ship. Apostle ship. See what I did there? He didn't just save you for you. He saved you for them. And so you burned one ship only to pick up another and that mantle is not to be saved, but because you are saved, you are now gonna ride on this ship to share the gospel with those who have never heard. That's the point. But you wanna know why we don't? A, because we don't believe it's that good. B, we're ashamed of it. But you know what's so interesting in in chapter 16, and we'll get to this in like 10 months or whenever it is. In chapter 16, Paul says this, his closing. See, these first sec- these are just his greeting. This is just his intro. This is his first paragraph. But in Romans chapter 16, he has an outro. You know what he says? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions in the church. Who cause divisions. Why? Because they're not serving the Lord. And then he says this at the end, now to him who is able to buy my gospel to strengthen you to preach the gospel among all the nations. You wanna know why churches don't continue preaching the gospel? Because they get caught up in preferences. They get caught up in divisions. 
And Paul's saying, listen, 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 stay focused on the gospel. Stay focused on the gospel that came to you that needs to go through you to them because God doesn't just love you, he also loves them. And as a church, this is what we're saying with multiply and everything else that we're saying is listen, the gospel is so good, it didn't just come from me, it came for them and it's only gonna go to them when it comes through me to them. And so I'm hoping at the end of this teaching in the book of Romans, you'll have more confidence in what the gospel actually is. And you'll experience more power of what the gospel actually is. And you'll stay more focused on the gospel. Because man, we can get sidetracked, can't we? We can get sidetracked so fast. And don't you know that the devil wants to do everything that he can to get the church to fight and not stay focused on the gospel. That's the mission. That's what, that's what this letter is all about. In fact, Paul writes the letter because this is a missionary support letter. He's on his way to Spain and he's saying, I need you to help me fund the gospel, the spread of the gospel. You wanna know why you exist? The gospel. You exist for the good news. God gave you the gifts that he gave you. He gave you the talents he gave you. He gave you the job that he gave you. And you may hate your job. And all the while you're saying, God, take me out of this job. And God's saying, I'm leaving you in that job because there's other people that hate their job and they need to know Jesus. And if it takes you staying in that job and hating it for the sake of the gospel, it will be worth it. Because what is this, 80 years? But you get an eternity with them, with Christ forever. Church, if you were not fired up about the gospel, I pray you will be after this service. And if you thought I was, just wait. Because the gospel came to me when I was in middle school. And I wasn't looking for it. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know anything about Jesus. But when it came to me, I dragged my whole family to come. And if they wouldn't take me, I'd get my great-grandmother who was 80-something. It was dangerous for her to drive to take me because I just wanted to be a part of this family. And God, in his graciousness to me and to you, not only saved us from something, he saved us for something. For the sake of the gospel, Paul says. So here's what I'm saying to you, and I'm done. Live your life for anything but that, and you'll waste it. Live your life for that, and you won't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus that came to us. And it's coming to us now through Paul. And it's come to us through so many faithful ministers and believers prior to us that told us about Jesus. So thank you for all of them, that hall of faith that exists in Hebrews. There's so many more names that will be added to it. But God, I know there are people in this room and listening right now that don't know Jesus. They don't know who he is. That he was man and he was God. And he came and died in their place for their sin. And he took what they deserve 
so that he could give to them what they don't deserve, which is love and joy and happiness and eternal presence in you. So God, right now, would you save them by the power of this good news? Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, if you've never trusted in Jesus, right now, I believe that through the preaching of God's word, his Holy Spirit opens your eyes. Paul's later gonna say in Romans, how can they know unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? So in the preached word today, if you've come to the realization that you need Jesus, you need to trust him and be saved. As Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, confess with your mouth and believe that God rose him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if that's you, the first part of the response very simply is trust Jesus. So nobody looking around or talking, if you wanna trust Jesus and be saved, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. You don't have to say it out loud, but if you want to, feel free. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son in my place for my sin. Thank you for taking what I deserve and putting it on Christ. Now give me what I don't deserve which is a relationship with you. Forgive me of my sin. I'm trusting in faith in Christ. Get nobody looking around or talking here as we close, but if you just trusted Jesus, very simply, I want you to do something for me. Just lift your hand up so we can see that. Thank you. We got men and women walking around, gonna put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. But as always, there's a second part to the response. And this second part very simply is not, has the gospel come to you? Because if you're saved, the gospel's come to you. But this one is, has the gospel gone through you? Is the gospel not only coming to you, but it's coming through you to others? Them, and I don't know who them is in your life. It could be your family, it could be your neighbors, could be people in Kenya. It's anybody among the nations, among the ethno groups that exist that don't know him. So if it's not coming through you, very simply, you can say, God, give me the boldness that Paul had to not be ashamed to share this good news that's come to me. I want it to come through me to them. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.